This episode of I Save That Podcast is sponsored by Access Scientific, makers of the Power Wand, the first and only non-coded catheter that is proven in vitro to inhibit bacterial attachment and proven in vivo to inhibit the formation of thrombus. With over 35,000 published catheter days without a catheter-related infection, it demonstrates that if it can't attach, it won't infect. Power Wand, infection prevention by design. You have arrived at Season 2, Episode 5 of the I Save That Podcast. This is Ramsey Nasrallah with Ava. I'm joined by Eric, uh, Eric Sager, the Java Editor-in-Chief, who is neck deep in Java things right now, and Director of Clinical Education. Judy Thompson, Judith, what's going on with you today? Judith, I'm obviously in trouble. Goodness <laughs> gracious. <laughs> as long as you don't drop the middle name along with the Judith, I guess I'm not going to get fired. I'm not today. that hostile. I'm not that hostile. Mm-hmm. Evidently, it's been a busy, busy time. Next yes. week, next week is our school. Is it so close? It's so close. So close, awesome. and a lot of it will also play into uh, Java. We'll have a lot of content on there as well. And and as Ramsey mentioned earlier, I, I am neck deep in Java things right now for the spring issue, which our listeners, those Ava members and other subscribers, can expect to see hitting your mailbox hopefully this week, if not. You know, early April at the very, very latest, uh, and it'll be online as well at avajournal.com. I'm very excited uh, for our first issue this year, and I hope that everyone else enjoys it. And uh, there's a lot of really great content in there, so I'm pretty happy with how it all came about. It also looks a lot newer. Well, not newer. It, it's it's a new look, Java, for 2019. It kind of got a facelift a little bit. Yeah, it's got a new cover on there, too, so it'll be nice. Facelift, but, but you can't even tell it got any work done. It's that natural. Done by a doctor in 90210, easily. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. This episode of the I Save That Podcast is made possible by support from Access Scientific and Ava Strategic Partner. Uh, AccessScientific.com for more details, and they are infection prevention by design. And when we return from the break, the three of us will chat with Dr. Raul Patek and a friend of the program, Shelly DeVries. Yes. So thank you all for listening and stay tuned. And now we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Raul Patek, a specialist in internal medicine, and Shelley DeVries, a senior infection control officer at Methodist Hospital in Indiana. Dr. Patek and Shelley are calling in from sunny Orlando, Florida this morning. Uh, good morning to you both. And we also have Ramsey Nasrallah, CEO of AVA on the line, excuse me, and Director of Clinical Education for AVA, Judy Thompson. Good Hello, morning, friends. Everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to all. Sounds like a, a such a cheery day here. Very chipper great. group. Very chipper group this morning. So I'm so excited to talk to you guys. Shelly, Dr. Paddock, thank you so much for getting up early and jumping on this call. 
we're going to be talking about vascular access and infection prevention. Surprisingly enough, when Shelly's on the phone, we mm. usually have those topics together. The recent AHRQ report confirms this. Let's talk about the vital role of the vascular access devices and how they affect infection prevention. Well, you had me at infection prevention and vascular access, Judy. You're right. There <laughs> is, you know, there's so much going on in this space right now as we're seeing increased awareness from every direction. You, you mentioned the recent AHRQ report which moved CLABSIs as the most expensive hospital-acquired infection, and honestly, the highest mortality as well. And we're all in it for the patients every single day when we come to work. But these are the reminders that there is still so much work to be done. And we've got people at the front lines, every patient, every day, trying to make a difference. ECRI came out with their top 10 patient safety list for 2019, and peripheral IV infections made that list. It did. Um, it, it did. It, I, I almost am at a loss for words that we are really seeing the awareness come down that every device, every line we put in our patients carries with it potential for harm. And identifying those risks allows us to, to take measures to try to mitigate those risks and bring them to the absolute lowest level they can, which will tie in wonderfully with CDC's 2020 proposal that we may actually expand bloodstream infections to be all hospital onset bacteremias, not just CLABSIs. The, the call for comments is out for that until April 15th. And I really, really hope we can get our awesome AVA networks and AVA membership online on the Federal Register, weighing in that when every line matters, every patient benefits. I know some people who can, can pull those strings, Shelley. I, I have a question for you specifically about this. Do we have to stop using the word overlooked when we talk about the threat to patient safety that peripheral IVs present? Or is it now? Is it now looked? I think this year is going to be pivotal with that. Uh, with once we see how that that ECRI report is received in our hospitals, and if the CDC proposal to expand surveillance actually comes into play, I would like to believe in the next many years we will no longer have to say that complications from non-central lines are overlooked. Uh, I, I'm definitely voting for that. And so uh, coming to coming to the point about uh, these infections being overlooked, to tell you the truth, a lot of hospitals pay a lot of attention to this, but they're not reported uh, just because they're not required to be reported. Every hospital, uh, you know, with a peripheral line infection, um, it, it makes a huge difference to them because it has to be reported as an incident incident report. You know that hospitals are looking at it, they have the data, but they're not reporting it further because it, it, some of them consider it to be a fault on their own part, on the part of nursing. However, uh, the, these infections, we have to understand that these are infections that can happen just because there's, there is an indwelling uh, substance in the patient's body and we need to address this and bring it to the, you know, bring it to surveillance and address that issue. Dr. Paddock, I, well said. But I think you must be in some good, really good hospitals. So. I know. I think I want, I want to follow him. <laughs> because the folks I've spoken to, and I know Shelly's spoken to, I'm not going to speak for you, Shelly, but I like to sometimes. They, When we ask infection preventionists, are you looking at your peripheral lines? Very few hands go in the air. In fact, my meeting I had in San Diego recently of 60 participants, I saw two hands. So that's because that's again, that's because the data never reaches them. The data stays on the floor, on the nursing floor. 
it stays on the hospital floor because each floor, whenever they have uh, an incident with a peripheral line or an infection, it gets written up as an incident report and it stays on the floor, on the nursing floor. And it never goes forward to in infection control because they're, these are not the data that they're looking for. I love to hear this, and I think this is something that we should probably explore a little more. Any incident, line-related incident, should be brought forward to uh, infection control in hospitals. And this is something that uh, surveillance should in include. And Do you think they had... Go, sorry, Shelley, go ahead. I just say I can't I cannot wait for a day when that is the standard in all of our organizations um, and that that information does flow forward up to the highest level so it's aggregated and trended so that interventions can be put in place because the Blau article that just came out once again looking at hospital onset peripheral IVs mirrors what Kovac said that 36% of hospital onset staph aureus bloodstream infections are coming from peripheral devices. Blau said it a lot more clearly and a lot more explicitly, but, but these are infections with complications that extend far beyond the period of the positive blood culture. Um, we're seeing it again and again, and it's time that every patient gets, gets the level of attention so that these can be prevented. I agree, I think we're at the tipping point right now. I'm so and excited. I know, me too, me too. So beyond policies and procedures, are there different vendors and their quality of different products? Do they have an impact, in your opinion, on the, the outcomes for these patients? I think that gets right back to data and understanding performance in each of our organizations, dictated by the individuals we have at hand inserting our lines, the incision, uh, individuals we have caring for our lines and understanding the performance of every single device in our institution. When we look, we stratify our data, not just by inserter, <clears throat> insertion location, and uh, physical location in the hospital, but when it comes to central lines, by lumens, and with our, with our midlines and with our peripheral lines, by vendor and by design. And we absolutely see differences between products. Um, we have our, our uh, midline article is actually getting ready to come out in the American Journal of Infection Control. I know Dr. Padek has published repeatedly on midlines looking at infections and, and some more serious considerations as well, or not more serious, more thorough considerations beyond just the infection. But we, we absolutely see differences between products. Um, and I think that needs to be part of our conversation when we're weighing how can we best affect patient outcomes. The products and the, the product-specific differences really do need to come to the table, and that starts with understanding their performance in your own institution? Well, people would like to tell you that uh, it, it has nothing to do with the product. It has everything to do with uh, the standard measures that you should use, the cleanliness of the skin, the, the technique of insertion. But, you know, more and more studies are getting out there now that uh, show uh, that this one, one or the other particular product, either no infection or very low um, incidence of infection. And I think that to be said, it doesn't mean all those other things don't matter. We can't stop with hand hygiene and maximum steroid barrier precautions and, and disinfecting the skin. Those are always events, but there are definitely differentiators out there. And, and this goes way beyond vascular access to the products that are available to us to help drive the outcomes. The fundamental prevention strategies must be in place to allow any product to perform to its best, but it does increasingly go beyond just our insertion bundle or just our care and maintenance bundle. Yeah, uh, we saw it at our hospital when we started implementing standard precautions, our infection line, uh, infection incidents 
for central lines went down. Um, and then uh, to take it a step further, we studied why this particular product, power wand catheters, they have had zero infections in more than 35,000 catheter days of published use. Uh, and that, that led to my paper uh, this uh, last year, studying to find out if there were differences between the catheter product itself, the lumen, the uh, material that was used, and compare it to another standard polyurethane catheter to see if there was a difference in the, the way uh, bacteria was attaching to it or biofilms were forming, if that could be the reason why this particular product, the power wand, had fewer incidences, actually zero incidences of infection compared to any other catheter out there. Well, this I got to admit, I'm kind of geek. I'm doing a little bit of fangirling here to be sitting in the room because this is my first chance to actually sit down face-to-face. -face. I have followed your work going back in, in 2015 at really that interface of, of midlines and infection prevention and CLABSI prevention. We had a chance to chat over the phone a couple months ago because I was so excited when your last article came out, but I first became aware of your stuff when you published that retrospective cohort study in the ventilator unit because my interest was really peaked with that piece because you were taking a really common sense approach to something that often becomes such a complicated conversation. Um, understanding whether a central line is necessary and discontinuing when it's not. We're all charged with that with our daily review of line necessity, but I'm not sure if it sometimes doesn't end with just checking a box, right? Yes, we did daily review of line necessity. You looked beyond the risk of infection as well, and I think that's so important because this is a complex conversation. It's not just one dimensional. But as I read that, because this was right when our hospital was getting ready to formally launch a midline program, and I noted that you also said you looked at measures to actually remove the midlines too when they were no longer needed. So you weren't advocating just-in-case lines, which is something in vascular access and infection prevention we deal with, but you were looking at every line and removing it when it wasn't necessary and trying to align the patients with the right line. It was an exciting time for us too, because we didn't have a lot of options for intravenous catheters and lines for patients uh, who needed, who had difficult access, uh, who needed central lines for um, things that peripheral lines could be used for. It was difficult because at that time there were no products available until we were first introduced to the midline catheter in, uh, in 2014 and we started to implement them in 2015 in our hospital after going through the preliminary you know, things that you have to in order to get it approved in a yeah. hospital. But once we did, we found that the midline was a fantastic alternative to intravenous access for patients who had central lines but did not need them specifically uh, for, say, inotropic drugs or uh, total parental nutrition and, and could do with a peripheral line that had better access and could be left in for a longer time. So we were excited when the power wand was introduced to us in 2015 that we could remove a lot of central lines. And just to be clear, you're saying the patients did not have parental nutrition, so they, you still require central lines for your TPN and your organization. Oh, yes. I just yes. want to make sure there's no... Um, and I think that's, that's what a lot of us were faced with when we started looking at what I think of the, the buffet of vascular access. When we had PICS and other central lines going in because our patients were so venous depleted from everything that they had gone through, and some of it's on us, some of it's on the medications they've gone through, but we were putting in, our organizations were putting in lines 
because the patients desperately needed access. Right. They didn't need central access. And I think, quite honestly, you were a little bit ahead of your time that you guys had this chance to come in because a lot of us, at least in, in my experience, and I know there are many teams who are also way, way ahead on this, but asking that question of, is there a better line? Is there a better way? And you measured the impact. You didn't just drop something in and say, hey, it's not a central line. You actually measured how it affected those humans who trusted you with their care. Yes. Uh, in order to, uh, after we started doing them, we did a study on to see if we could uh, reduce the CLAPSI infection rate, uh, the central line infection rate in those patients. And it did. We found that not only did it reduce the catheter, number of catheter days by 37%, Wow, there were no CLAPSI infections in, in patients who uh, received midlines instead of cath um, central lines uh, in that ventilator unit for that period of study. And that's a Zero. tough population. Dr. Paddock, when we were speaking a little earlier, you mentioned um, no CLAPSIs were found in the group with midlines. I know that's not what you intended to say. I just wanted to have you clarify. What, what I intended to say that after starting to use midlines in that population of patients in the ventilator unit, there were no more CLAPSIs during that period of study. But you also measured and looked for infections in the midlines. Yes. So did. the midlines had zero infections as well. And we don't really have a word for those yet other than midline-associated infections. You were watching for those as well because I think one of the conversations we have and what our vascular access teams are faced with is feeling that they're being pressured by administration, so not clinically making the decision to shift to a midline but administration or other perceived pressures saying shift devices because then they don't count, then it doesn't impact. But you're coming from this, from the medical side saying these patients never needed that central line. And when they didn't need the central line, we chose a device that was right. And we didn't just shift to a line because it didn't count. You actually counted and, and looked actively for infections and other complications. Absolutely. And to tell you the truth, like you said earlier, this is a something which is just basic logic. Change it if it's not needed. Why use a line that has, uh, you know, one tip that's sitting in the heart <laughs> uh, and, you know, can cause all kinds of infections, endocarditis and, and central line infections and, you know, uh, 14 days of antibiotics or yeah. 30 days of, it just makes sense. Change it if you don't need it. And there, there you go. Not only did it reduce, uh, you know, the number of overall catheter days that were there in that unit, it, you know, eliminated central line infections at all. So then fast forward, and I know I sound a little bit like a groupie, but I'm just going to say uh, it is what it is. In, in 2018, you actually had two more articles come out. Um, but the first one, you had another article looking again at the impact of incorporating midlines into your infection prevention program. You caught my eye again because you were talking about introducing the CDC prevention strategies. You did not see a statistically significant CLABSI reduction with just that piece, which is intriguing and probably a whole other conversation. You stuck with those guidelines. And by the way, thank you for continuing to do the CDC guidelines. And then you added midlines there to better align, once again, the device choices with patient needs. You measured the outcomes in a way that's not just clinically relevant, but it was really an approachable language and one that starts to resonate with our administration, because you're talking about the things that matter way beyond those of us, those of you at the bedside, but how did this impact the hospital? So first and foremost, how did it impact the patient? But you spoke in a common sense, approachable way that says, why does this matter to the hospital who are sometimes a little bit away from the bedside? This, this paper was different from uh, our first paper. 
Our first paper looked at only the group of patients in a ventilator unit. Uh, these are patients that have been there for a long time who require, um, you know, lines because they have difficult venous access. The second paper that we published in 2018 did not look at only ventilator patients, ventilator unit patients. These were all the patients in the hospital. So patients who've been there for only one day who got a central line, say when they came in in shock, got a central line, and then the next day when they were out of shock and they didn't need anything, central line was taken out and a midline put in so that they could get all the other uh, medications they needed, you know, even though they were in shock. This this paper showed that using using midlines to replace central lines anywhere in the hospital when they were not needed anymore decreased the number of catheter days significantly. Now, not only does it decrease the number of catheter days, it reduces the rate of infection significantly, CLAPSI infection uh, significantly. Without moving it to midline infection. Without moving it to midline infections, no midline. I can't let that one go. Right, and um, you track. That's the other part, <laughs> that you do track. Right, and, and using standard implementation uh, techniques that CDC recommends, the CDC recommended uh, techniques, yes, Everybody should do that. Every hospital should do that. It just becomes difficult. Midlines are put in uh, when the patient is stable. You've already assessed the situation. You found that a central line is no longer needed. You have your time to do it. You can do it properly. You can take your time, um, take all the precautions necessary. The same CDC guidelines for central line infection prevention, the bundle, is used for midline insertions. So in my organization as well. Right. So there you go. You know, it's the same thing in both lines. Just these lines are not getting infected. Central lines are getting infected. I think that's great. So if I can, can keep going. So that was early 2018. And then toward the end of last year, you actually kind of shifted hats. And you went from being the doc at the bedside to being the laboratory scientist. And for me, it, it was intriguing because I know your vested interest in the patient because, again, I'm not ashamed to say I followed your work and I saw what you were doing in a variety of populations, a variety of settings, and I am faced with every time I'm out talking about whether it's peripheral infections or midline infections or even central line infections, why? Why is there a difference? What are you doing differently? And, and up until you published at the end of last year, I would have to say I don't know. There appears to be differences with products because I know I have the same inserters, I know I have the care and maintenance, but I had no why. And so I make absolutely no claim to being a polymer scientist and understanding that technical side. That is not my thing. But when I read your lab-based study, which is what we kind of started this conversation with, looking at biofilm formation, it starts to kind of fill in some of those blanks of what, what you and now me and many others are actually seeing that differentiates this absence of infections. I think you've got some really good stuff out there that you've started to talk about, but wow. Well, to tell you the truth, I'm not a lab scientist. <laughs> and uh, before we started doing the study, um, I was in the blind about a lot of things myself. Being associated with the clinical part, I could see that midlines had fewer infections. And then I saw that this particular midline power wand had zero infections in more than 35,000 catheter days in different publications. And I wanted to see if it was the material that they use, uh, if it was any different. So uh, I did this uh, study in the lab uh, to simulate 
uh, a sort of a normal skin uh, which harbors bacteria normally. Uh, so we had this in uh, this experiment that had a dermis, epidermis, hypodermis uh, layer, uh, and then we we had bacteria in one of these layers, and then we passed uh, different midlines, a standard polyurethane midline, and the power wand uh, through these layers, and then we incubated them for a for for a number of days, and then after incubating them, we studied them to see uh, under fluorescence uh, to see if they were how many bacteria were attached to them, and then not just how many were attached, whether they were alive or dead at the end of the incubation period. And, and the results we found were, uh, were, you know, they were very surprising. We found that, yes, polyurethane catheters had higher rates of bacterial attachment, uh, up to five and a half times higher than compared to the material used in power wands. That's uh, intense. It is. It is five and a half times. Because I, I looked at those pictures, and again, I'm I'm just looking at it, going, that's that's a big deal, or it seems like it's a big deal. If if you find those pictures <laughs> um, surprising, what's even more surprising is that when, when you compare power wand to the standard polyurethane catheter, and you see, oh, there's five and a half times more bacteria attached to the standard one. What you also don't see immediately, which you have to go into further detail, is to see that the ones that are, are attached, that the, the bacteria that are attached to the power wand, they're one and a half times more likely to be dead. Yeah, I saw that. Can you help me understand anything about that? Like, <laughs> well, well, <laughs> the, the details are, you know, we're still trying to figure out the details. Science is still young. But what I feel is that because they're not attaching and forming a biofilm, they're not getting the nutrition that they need and they're dying off. Okay. And that's possibly it. I don't... Uh, we're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and where I love that we're able to have this conversation is, quite honestly, this was published in, in Medical Devices Evidence and Research, which is all the right kind of nerd fast, sorry, for where it went. But having a chance to understand, because it affects us. It affects us in vascular access. It affects us in infection prevention at a, at a little bit different level. But... I'm I'm so geeked that we have a chance to bring it here and go, okay, so that's not the first journal that I pick up, but the ramifications of it affect our everyday our everyday practice. Many clinical Most... doctors will not pick up uh, that journal and I'm I'm surprised uh, that we don't. Well not I'm you will now. surprised. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised that we don't. We, will we, you sign we... my copy? <laughs> but, oh my gosh. <laughs> You're so cute. <laughs> um, we need this we need this um we need this study to come out in clinical practice. Uh, so we need to show uh, the same thing that we did in biofilms in, in a lab, we need to show it in clinical practice. And then I think that will be one of the next steps that we... So are you you're saying your fantasy is a big <clears throat> randomized controlled trial? Yes. Uh, and so it, 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 I think it will be more difficult to bring it into practice where you're, you're doing uh, standard polyurethane catheters and power wands in actual patients and then trying to take out those power ones when they're done and, you know, put, send them to a lab uh, to see how much biofilm there is. This will be a much more difficult study. Uh, a randomized controlled trial would be best if it can be done in a clinical setting. However, before I do that, uh, before I want to do that, I want to compare the, the material that is used in power ones to other uh, vascular access uh, catheter materials. So extended uh, dual stay catheters, uh, central line catheters, uh, and see if this material would be ideal. It's actually very cool. Yeah, if this material could actually 
be used to, to make central lines or extended dual catheters or pick lines? Well, I think it already is to a certain extent, right? So I think if, if we're talking about uh, the power wand material, Chronoflex C, uh-huh. like there is the three French six nanometer, which is essentially a extended dual peripheral IV. I know uh, Jonica Perez has published, I believe, some work certainly presented at the nursing critical care conferences looking at the performance of that device. When they take a shorter catheter, they keep it in the forearm as much as possible, and their outcomes are mirroring, mirroring or exceeding what you and I have seen when we looked at the, the longer catheters largely in the upper arm. So it's the same material. Oh. Um, you're like, oh, wow, he's got a new oh, wow, toy wow. now, too. Yeah. Boy, that's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. That, uh, this is amazing. That material has shown, uh, at least in my study, that you know, uh, it inhibits biofilm forma- formation. That material should definitely be used to study if it can be used for other uh, lines and central lines and pick lines and, and all kinds of lines. How about some standard short peripheral catheters, too, as long as I'm getting my wish list in here? When you were talking about removing CD, um, CVADs and um, the risk of endocarditis and other issues related to CVADs, when we have any line-associated bloodstream infection, which I'm hoping that this is going to be our new mantra in the future, that we have if there's a lab C out there that we need to address it. You mentioned endocarditis specifically with central lines, but uh, an infected peripheral line can also result in endo. I'm so concerned about every line and that's what obviously we're changing our mantra too, hopefully. So I, I just wanna push that, that removing our central lines, it's great to get in a more an appropriate line that will do the job the least invasive we can, yet that peripheral line is gonna, can cause endo as quickly, correct? Definitely, um, any kind of bloodstream infection can cause endocarditis if there's also a native valve problem, mitral regurgitation or tricuspid regurgitation or stenosis uh, or a bioprosthetic valve or a mechanical valve in place or if they have uh, any ports in place already, or if they have something uh, like an AICD device or a pacemaker, uh, any... They're pretty much like all of our patients these days. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> any right. any infection can infect any of these, even if a patient is elderly or if their immune system is uh, low, uh, you can have these simple bloodstream infections from a peripheral line uh, cause endocarditis in these patients. So true, so true. Now, you have many... It seems like your mind is moving all the time about what um, what you can go study. And I'm so glad that you have a focus in this vascular access arena that we play in so much. On the path forward, now, Shelly, you've gone down this path as well as bringing in different devices into your hospital. And when other vascular access teams want to go down this path and try, what do you have advice for them? Measure everything. That's, that's always going to be my mantra. Understand where you're coming from and looking at it really holistically. For me, when we introduced our midlines originally, I was most involved in monitoring, and I'll even say micromanaging, I'll admit that, from the infection side. But we looked at every outcome that happened with those devices. And when we first kind of spread it out to take a look at where we were, what we realized is we didn't have any good comparisons. So we knew our completion of therapy, we knew our inclusion, we knew our infiltration, 
But at that point, and I know many teams are so far ahead of this, at that point, we couldn't lay it side by side with what was going on with our PIX lines, with our, with our short peripheral catheters. And certainly those lines should not clinically be interchangeable, but those were the decisions that our team had in front of them. Like, what were the tools in their toolbox? So for us, taking the performance of all the devices placed by the vascular access team and really laying them out, now it happens in real time on a monthly basis, what is the, the end of every device that's placed and do you know how you can predict the performance of the devices you place, whether it's infection or DVT or occlusion or infiltration, understanding that the device is placed at your hands, care fared by your staff, and then really seeing where your, where your opportunities are, your remaining opportunities, and how you can improve the overall outcomes. Partnering with infection prevention is a great place to start, um, particularly with the conversation about midlines, but I would say every conversation can start with some collaboration with infection prevention or hospital epidemiology because they're the keepers of the original data. Right now, there's a lot of talk about CLABSIs. There's a lot of talk with the Lab ID MRSA events. Those are related many times with even the Lab ID MRSA to vascular access. So understanding how you're performing overall, but then also looking at that device utilization. For us, once we're in NHSN, it's a few keystrokes. And if you're saying we need to decrease central lines, there's a quick tool we spit out. It's your, it's your standardized utilization ratio. And you can understand as an organization, how are you performing with central line usage? And then it drills down by ICU, by med surge, by step down, and finally to the level of the unit. Many of us will see our units that are utilizing more central lines than predicted are also the units that are experiencing more CLABSIs than predicted. That may not play out in every single hospital, but that's certainly been my experience and the experience of, you know, I have a chance to meet so many other great vascular access folks. It's common sense if we could reduce unnecessary exposure. And I don't think either of us is saying don't use central lines. I know we're not saying don't use central lines. And I think sometimes that conversation gets blurred. And what our specialists are hearing is no central line equals no CLABSI. That's true. But that doesn't mean that every patient can be downgraded or, or risk reduced to a different device. That's a terrible phrase, and I really, but patients still need central lines. But if they don't need a central line, we wanna see if there are viable options to help them get there and help them get there in the, the least risky way. What happened was how much better we found them to be. We just found them to be more convenient, less uh, problematic. Um, you don't have to do an x-ray to find out if it's in the right place. Uh, you don't have to worry about pneumothorax or hemothorax. Uh, you don't have to worry about so many things. It's just, it just makes sense. Uh, if, if, the, if the reason why I was putting in central lines was because there's this patient for, who's been there for 30 days and has no vascular access. Why, uh, if I can put in a med midline, why not? Uh, and then just based on what, when I started to truly appreciate uh, what midlines can do for our patients, I wanted to see if there was other benefits from it. And that, that's what led us to, to do the study in the first place. I'm like in hashtag, it just makes sense. Right. <laughs> Now you've you've published in medical devices, which a lot of our vascular access folks don't really see. We need to get you to publish in Java. That's where all your your, hey. your flock will be. The next one. Thank you. Okay. I know a great I like editor. The sound of that. 
I like the sound of that. Always a good plug from our director of clinical education to the journal. I appreciate that. Thank you, Judy. My, and my yes, pleasure. Anytime you want to talk about publishing with uh, Njava, Dr. Patrick, I'm, I'm your man. Just let me know. Looking forward to it. So Shelly, I have one, another question for you. You track everything. Both of you do. Actually, I'm going to, uh, it's a shared question. I know a lot of folks out there that have difficult or not, maybe not difficulty. I don't want to phrase this wrong. There's, there's infection preventionists that are tracking central line infections on a piece of paper, or they pull up a report. They're not doing possibly a comprehensive line look. How do you, what tool do you use? Is it something you created and you might be willing to share? What are the bits that you have actually put together to look at all your lines so you can have comparable and you can look at your data side by side? So I can, I can start. Um, I get data from so many different sources because I do think if we rely on only one source, we're going to get a pretty bias just based on the nature of the data. Like if you're using only your electronic medical record, you're going to get a sample of information. That being said, every week I get a report on every peripheral device in my hospital, how many hours it was in and its reason for removal. So on a quick snapshot, my EMR analysts are able to send me that basic information so I can track and see maybe where we're seeing problems, where we're seeing opportunities. We also have now our vascular access team. It's a, it's a homegrown spreadsheet I made for them where they track all of their central lines, all of their PICs um, by lumen, their midlines by brand, their peripheral IVs, and they record and monitor then its dwell days rather than hours of dwell, but also the final disposition of each of those lines. And then it auto-calculates for them. This is very simple Excel, like my skills they're not limited, but they'll get us through the basics. So they can know each of their complication rates on a monthly basis of all the lines they place. But that's still largely through review of the record. Once a month, we bring, and I actually did a poster on, on this. I actually did a lot of posters last year at AVA. But um, our inclusive rounding, our vascular access jamboree, once a month, we bring in all of our vendors from our central line kits, from our peripheral line kits, and it's infection prevention, and it's nursing professional development, it's nursing quality, sometimes nursing administration, our vascular access team, and we go out and we round the bedside with our, with our industry partners so we could actually see how the devices are performing in our humans. We talk with the bedside staff to understand any problems they're having, making the devices work, because we're, we're putting a lot of things together on our patients. It's not just one thing. And trying to understand right now what are we seeing with those devices. And so that's every month. That's, that's around 100 lines, 150 lines every month in that collaborative rounding. And then we also see somewhere around 2,500 vascular access devices with eyes laid on them from frontline staff, from the vascular access team, from infection control. And that is a, a, a spreadsheet again. It's actually the same spreadsheet we use so that every unit every month, based on the lines that are looked at on their unit, can tell you uh, what's going on with their, with their administration sets, what's going on with their dressing, what's going on with their CHG sponge, their alcohol caps, what are the reasons they're placing lines, um, and then any actions that are taking from it. So it's, it's, it's not perfect, and I'm always the first one to admit we are not perfect but we're trying through a combination of what we call our, our process measures surveillance by actually looking at people, looking at charting, 
and then monitoring how it goes. I think we've got a, a pretty robust way of, of trying to get our pulse because if we can fix those processes, the outcomes will follow. For me, uh, all I do is my uh, electronic medical records, uh, people there, the analysts, uh, they're able to pull up uh, a lot of uh, details for me, the ones that I want to do in my study. Uh, and then I rely on my infection control specialist. Yeah, ooh, <laughs> collaboration. There we go. That's perfect. They have these huge spreadsheets <laughs> on them. And now, uh, today, today I find out what they have to go through to get them. <laughs> Very good. Dr. Paddock and Shelley DeVries, I can't thank you enough for spending your morning with us. This has been enlightening. It's been fun. And... I hope to have you guys back soon. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much, guys. Judy, thank Eric, you. Ramsey. Yes, absolutely. Happy to have you on. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Eric back with another look at the upcoming events on the AVA Network calendar. Tomorrow evening, Thursday, March 28th, Foothills AVA welcomes Karen Johnson to Asheville, North Carolina, for a presentation on preventing and managing extravasation. This event starts at 6.30 p.m., and one continuing education credit will be provided to, to all attendees who complete an online evaluation. Email foothillsava at gmail.com to RSVP. On Tuesday, April 2nd, Chattavan hosts a network meeting at the Feed Company Table and Tavern in Chattanooga. And on Thursday, the 4th, Ava WNY and Flavin kick off Ava Network events in the month of April with a pair of dinner presentations. Ava WNY hosts Dennis Kupka for a discussion on understanding deep vein thrombosis and standards of care for sterile technique starting at 6 p.m. at the Terry Hills Golf Club in Batavia, New York. RSVP by April 1st to reserve your spot. That same evening, Flavan explores PIV failure and why a new standard of care is needed with Russ Nassoff. Join Russ and others for the conversation starting at 6.30 p.m. at Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurant in Orlando. And as always, be sure to check out avainforg slash networks for information on how to RSVP for all network events. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. This is Lori Kazmarek, AVA President-Elect. Thanks again to Dr. Raul Paddock and Shelley DeVries for taking time out of their busy schedules to join us on this episode of I Save That Podcast. Thank you again to Access Scientific for sponsoring this episode, and thank you, all of our loyal listeners. Happy spring, everybody. The information discussed on the I Save That Podcast is solely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information that we've presented. 
The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this video or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.